All right, let me get to Acts 17 myself. I forgot to turn there. All right, we're going to start off in verse number 1. <clears throat> and I hope you've been praying this week what the Lord would have you to do as far as cornerstone towards the cause of world missions. And Acts 17, verse number 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphilius and Am uh, Apollyana, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas and, and, of, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of a baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. When they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decree of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. When they had taken security of Jason and of the others, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Therefore many of them believed, also of honorable women which were Greeks, and of men not a few. But when the Jews of the Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached to Paul at Berea, they came thither also, and stirred up the people, then the and then the multitude, oh, excuse me, and then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go as it were to the sea, but Silas and Timotheus abode there still. And they, and they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens, and receiving a commandment, uh, 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 and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus for to come unto him with all speed, they departed. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we certainly do love you, and we thank you for your word, and and Lord, we ask your blessing now upon this service. Lord, help me to stay true to your word. Lord, I pray you control what I say and how I say it. I pray that it would, be, it would bring glory and honor unto you, that you would be well pleased. Lord, I pray that you would use your word and your spirit to speak to hearts, to draw us closer to you, to strengthen us in our faith. And Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here who has never truly been converted, Lord, I pray for that conviction and that drawing that perhaps even this morning they repent and place their faith in Christ. Lord, I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, I want to do something a little bit different. Almost coming to, you, coming to you as if I am a companion of Paul that was with him on the second missionary journey. As if I am reporting back to Cornerstone as to what has taken place um, on the second missionary journey with Paul. And um, we did not have iPhones back then, so I don't have any pictures or slides. So I'm just going to have to use your imagination to follow along with us here this morning. And the title of the message that I'm going to drive at specifically is the events that took place in Thessalonica. And the title of the message is Turning the World Upside Down. So, Paul, who was one of the most amazing men, uh, he, the, his very first missionary journey, he was called out of the church at Antioch, and the first region he ever went into was the region of Galatia. 
It was with an amazing response that took place there. He stopped off and another companion that was with us named Barnabas. We went into Cyprus and, and we saw one of the leading men of government come to know the Lord. And then we got up into the area of Galatia. This was after we witnessed Paul suffer probably with what we thought was malaria for a significant time frame hindering us from moving as soon as we landed on the main coast. And then we traveled up into, through the steep mountain range to get into Galatia. Paul was the one pressing forward said, this is where we need to get. We saw churches established in different places, Antioch of Pisidia, Lystra, Derby, Paul being stoned. We witnessed all that he went through, and then he came back and has reported what he did. It wasn't long before he determined he was setting out again on the second missionary journey. And on this one, it started off with a great difficulty immediately, because as Paul and Barnabas, who was with him on the first missionary journey, both called of God to head out, they had a sharp division between them. It was rough to watch. It was difficult to see as these two men had a strong disagreement. You see, we had another companion that started off on the first missionary journey, a man named John Mark, who was Barnabas's nephew. And Barnabas, always being such an encourager, always such an encourager, wanted to bring him again. Paul being so, so determined and so uh, set on his goals and what he wanted to accomplish for the Lord, he did not think there was any wisdom in bringing John Mark. And it was a sharp division. Neither were willing to budge. And so Barnabas takes John Mark, and then Paul, there's another man, a leader, who came in from Jerusalem, an amazing man named Silas. Paul grabs Silas, and we head out. As we head out, we, of course, report, we go to check on the churches that were established in Galatia and see what they were doing. And in the one area, we found an, a man who was just doing incredible, a young man. He was just amazing. His name was Timotheus, Timothy. And Paul said, you're coming with us. So as we stopped in the churches of Galatia, we encouraged them. Paul grabs Timothy. He wants Timothy to come with him. He wants to do more specific training with this man, Timothy. Paul wanted to head into Asia Minor of the day, modern-day Turkey. He, he knew the importance of a city like Ephesus, but it was clear the Lord just wasn't directing. It was almost as if Paul was, wasn't even certain which way we should go. We started just traveling. We sort of, sort of headed in a, a north, uh, a westerly direction, still not clear what the Lord would have him. And before long, we found ourselves in a place called Troas, a coastal town. While there, we're still seeking God's direction. Paul is begging God, what would you have us to do? He's just not certain which way this mission should go. And why there that we would meet such an important man, a man named Luke. Now, Luke was incredible. He was a believer. He was also a doctor. And with all that Paul had already been through, through his sickness, through the beatings, the stonings, this is a man who would need a doctor traveling with him. And so we meet Luke, and the fellowship is just great. And then Paul receives clear direction of the Lord. We called it the Macedonian call. Through a vision that God used, God directed him to head into Europe. So now we see the very first missionary trip that's going to take place heading into Europe. Paul was so excited. He had a desire for Europe and the region of that continent. And so immediately he began to game plan what's going to take place. When he considered where we would land, uh, getting on a ship out of Troas, believing the Lord put us in Troas for a reason, to get that, to get that call of the Lord, to get us into Macedonia, and, and to meet Luke as, uh, as well in Troas, he determined the, the chief city that we're going to start off in is going to be a city called Philippi. So we head off on both. We make the travel. We get on land. It takes us just a short time to get to, Phil to get to Philippi, and that was just an incredible city. Paul had loved the city of Philippi when he was there. He had always wanted to see it, and we got there. Paul realized he, he had, had already had some knowledge that there probably wasn't a synagogue there, but as his custom was, he always liked to go into a synagogue first 
and, and preach there. But he knew there's still going to be an element of Jewish believers present, but they probably did not have enough men that was required for the establishment of a synagogue. So if that took place, what would take place in every single town was they would meet by water. So Paul headed near down by the water, and sure enough, that's where they were. And then we saw his very first convert, a damsel, a, a, a businesswoman named Lydia. Oh, and she came to know faith in Christ. It was so incredible. We began to see God working in Philippi. Little did we know what was coming, because after a damsel, we're going to see another, another lady that gets involved, a demon-possessed uh, young lady. And Paul goes in and realizing what's taking place there and casts this demon out. And, and, and those who she was being used for financial gain by some wicked men because of her abilities that, uh, as a result of her being demon possessed. And of course, when Paul had cast out that wicked spirit, their ability to make money was, was all of a sudden taken away. They weren't too thrilled with us at all. And so then what they do is uh, uh, they raise a ruckus. They have Paul and Silas arrested. They would be arrested because they were the Jewish men that were with us. Timotheus, Timothy was, was half Jew and half, and, and half Greek. And so the others were not taken up. Paul and Silas were. They were arrested. And wow, boy, did they beat them. How, how, how the Roman government beat, they had, these, they had this instrument they would use. It would be usually a series of three sticks. They can even put an axe head right on top of it if capital punishment was going to be involved. Now, that was not, the axe head was not on this, this series of rods that were there. Now, Paul, being Jewish, they had a law that when you beat somebody, it could not exceed 39 times. But this time, it's going to exceed 39 times. They're not going to follow Jewish law by any customs. That would happen to Paul a couple of times on his travels with how severely he'd be beaten. And they held him and they beat him and beat him and beat him and beat him. The jailer is right there. They finish the beating and now they're going to take him and cast him into the prison. So they take Paul and Silas. His back is beating sore. It has been beaten sore. It's just, it's just even difficult to look at. They, they, take him, they, they take him into the prison. They put him in these stocks. Now this was an interesting device. Really what it did was it made it incredibly hard to even stand, let alone run away. Your feet would be a, a good distance apart, locked in this thing of wood. And for the most part, get this, your only choice what you could do is lay on your back, which had just been beaten severely. And so the jailer, the, the man in charge of the prison, he himself gets Paul and Silas. And of course, he hears the ruckus. These are men that that damsel with the evil spirit, evil spirit was crying out that these are the servants of the Most High God. Uh, of preaching about this one true creator. He hears all this. And he said, you know what? He noticed there was something different about Paul right away. He said, you know, as, as we were taking him into the prison, he's not begging for mercy. He's not saying, please, no, please, please don't. He said there was something different about this man. And he said, and, and we laid him on his back, which most men would have been screaming in agony. Please don't do that. Please don't. None of this came from that man. And he said, as I, as I, as I shut the, the cell door and walked away, it's about midnight at this time. And I hear him. And you can hear Silas, Silas said, what are we going to do? He said, we're going to sing. We're going to sing unto God. And, and notice what they sang was interesting. They sang praises unto the Lord. I got news. They weren't singing, God on the mountain, still God in the valley. They weren't singing songs about, woe is me and my trials and my troubles. Paul knew that's not the answer. We're going to focus on how great God is. We're going to focus on His greatness and His goodness. And he sang praises unto the Lord. 
he sings these praises and it's like, wow, and these guys are different. So much so that all the prisoners are hearing them. I mean, everybody knew there's something different about these men. And then, boy, the sovereign God would intervene. An earthquake hits. I mean, right there in Philippi, the ground shakes. And another miracle occurs at the same time. All of the prison doors are open. Paul heads out, and all the prisoners, all, what they do, they go. everybody's connecting all this to that man, Paul. The prisoners head to him. The jailer awakes. He, he's getting his light. He says, all oh, the prison doors are open. They're all gone. Which, when you're in charge of the prison, and if you have anybody in there that has escaped um, that was under capital punishment, your life would be taken. He understood that. And the honorable way to deal with that wouldn't be let it go to trial if the government do that. You would take your own life. And so he does what was expected of his culture. He gets a sword. He's going to take his own life. And Paul cries out, Sir, do thyself no harm. We're all here. Nobody's left. He can't believe it. Getting his light. He heads over and he sees every single one is present. They could all run away. At that moment, that man knew whatever that man was preaching was true. That's truth. We heard him cry out, Sirs, what must I do? to be saved. That wasn't dealing with physical salvation for this Roman jailer. It was dealing with the message he heard they were preaching. The need of salvation. Oh, he put his faith in Christ. We went into his house. He washed, he washed his wounds. This man's wife puts his faith in Christ. Now, he, by the way, is in charge of the jailer. This more than likely was a retired Roman soldier. So he'd have adult children, by the way. Later on, there's going to a doctrine come about that's going to use this chapter as a basis for infant baptism. It's a bunch of nonsense. He didn't have babies in his house. This man would have been a grandfather by this time. And so uh, they fellowship, and a church is started. It was amazing to witness. And then the next day, I mean, the town realized. Everybody connected the event to that preacher. And so they let him know, listen, that guy has to go. So they go to Paul, hey, listen, they want you out of town. I said, no, no, no. They need to come see me first. Let them come tell me. And so they go to Paul. And Paul lets them know, hey, what you did, by the way, was highly illegal. I'm a Roman citizen. And they're like, oh. Paul understood how this could be used. He understood of the persecution that was coming in the churches from the first missionary trip, he could use this as a measure of protection for this trip at Philippi. He basically, he's, he agreed to go, I'm going to go, but he had this. He had this knowledge of what they did that can cost them absolutely their position, if not their life. It had provided a measure of protection for the church at Philippi. But then Paul, he doesn't stop there. He heads down, he leaves there, we head to the next town, an important town, Thessalonica. And it's here that he is going to be charged with turning the world upside down. And it's in that that I want to try and be helping, reporting back uh, to Cornerstone Baptist Church and how you can be effective in the cause of missions and in this world and in your own town, uh, that you can have such an effect that when others see what's taking place, they know this changes everything. So I want to show you what took place.
in Thessalonica. You see, Paul, when fellowship with him, he loved the men in Scripture and the men he met that could turn the world upside down. He would talk of men like Elijah and Mount Carmel, willing to stand and make a difference that in one event with one day changed everything. Or men like Jeremiah, who were willing to suffer immense persecution and immense suffering, even in their own nation, was such a difficult nation to preach because Paul was a man who understood. He had a heart for his own nation and his own people, but he knew their rejection of the gospel. But he thought often of the weeping prophet Jeremiah. He became friends with Peter, who talked about the change in his life that God did. How going from denying Christ back to back to back to preaching and thousands coming to know the Lord. He often thought on those men. I was even reading as I was thinking of coming here. And I read where one man said this. He said, there are people in this world, there are people who watch things happen. There are people who make things happen. And there are people who don't know what's happening. Paul was one of the men who made things happen. As Christians, that should be true in our life. This isn't based on personality type. It's based on the God that we serve. The greatness of God. What made people like this different? How is it that we can have an effect to turn our world upside down? To make a difference in the lives of those who are around, those who you work with. How can we genuinely see people converted and changed, seeing their families changed, thus seeing our town, our community, the culture changed? How can Cornerstone affect the world and send missionaries? How can Cornerstone affect America? Of course, we all know the answer to this is the gospel. It is what changes lives. It does just that. I am telling you because of a shallow of the presentation and the multitudes of quote conversions we have seen, the truth is, and I don't know if an unconscious lover or whatever it is, it is as if we have lost faith in the ability of the gospel to change lives. Most of that is because of all the false professions, because all we did was run people through a 30-second presentation who know nothing of the Lord and say, pray this prayer. And nothing ever changes. Simply because nobody was ever converted. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, but all things are become new. But what the Bible, what we see throughout, throughout on these missionary journeys, is the gospel changes lives. Matter of fact, Ryan reminded me the other night when I was preaching about that same point of David Livingston when they needed to track him down. If you ever read his biography, it's fascinating. You want to know how they tracked him down? They couldn't, they couldn't locate him on a G- GPS back then. But he couldn't call out and say, hey, this is where I'm going to be. They simply noticed wherever he was, the people were changed. All right, he'd been here. <laughs> he, he's been here. They, oh, oh, he's been here. And so finally, they could track the guy down. Why? Because the gospel changes people. I mean, those of you saved right now, think of how different your life is because you know Christ. I mean, I wonder, I wonder, brother, where you'd be right now if we weren't saved. You'd probably be in a rock and roll band 
I'd probably be buying tickets and after you don't want my money back. I'm like, that was a waste of time. <laughs> we all know our country needs a change. Amen. The answer is not the Republican Party. No. The answer is the gospel. So, when we got into Thessalonica, though, I mean, the charge was given. This was a man, this was a man who turned the world upside down. I want us to look at the things that took place there that are right here in Scripture that just give a perfect pattern if we're going to make a difference in the lives of others. If you want to write them down, you don't have to, but I'm going to give them very quickly. They're all peace. Propel, provoke, prove, persistent, and personal sacrifice. So, in diving into this, let me first set the stage for when we come into this city of Thessalonica, of what was happening. This, Thessalonica, is a large city. It's really about the size of Anchorage, Alaska. It runs over 200,000. It was a trade center. It was, a, it, 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 had a, it, had an, it was crucial economically and commercially. It had been founded, the founding of it is very fascinating, by Cassander in 316 B.C. He, at the time, he was the king of Macedonia. He named it after his wife. His wife was Thessalonica, and that's what's interesting, because Thessalonica was the half-sister of Alexander the Great. So he founds this city. He names it after his wife, and, and it, was, it, it was called the mother of Macedonia. It was the largest and the capital city of the province. Paul knew a church here is going to be so important. We need a strong church established here. A port city. Of course, the language, as it was in all major cities of that day, was Greek. Very cosmopolitan, but it had major problems. Thessalonica was known for its crime. Crime was rampant. Very, very few houses even installed windows because of the crime problem. Um, and so that would be a, that was one way they consider a fortifying. Let's just get rid of our windows with all that's taking place here. One commentator said this when describing the town of Thessalonica during this time. He said this: It was controlled by an idolatrous pagan group of wealthy elites. There was no middle class, and the rest of the people, the majority, were slaves. There was conflict between the slaves and the elites. Immorality was common. Prostitution was both legal and highly organized. Archaeologists found in some of the digs around Thessalonica that obscene pornographic images had been painted on the outside of the houses, the outside of homes. Babies were commonly abandoned and left for dead. Divorce was rampant. Murders were common. This was a full-blown pagan city. And it's in here that Paul's going to enter. And turn the world upside down. Now, we had Paul comes in. He's going to preach for three weeks. And it certainly is very possible, as me and your pastor were talking the other day, that that was the amount of time that he stayed there. But it might have also been just dealing with the window of those events, because we know from Philippians as well as Corinthians that he actually found himself employment during this time. And so, but nonetheless, he goes to the synagogue three Saturdays and he's preaching. And we see many convert. 
A large number of people believe, especially Greek proselytes, those Gentiles who had decided to follow Judaism, renounce the paganism, and know that there is one true God. Multitudes of those, and that makes sense that would be the majority. Because for them, their religion wasn't simply culture. But for many in the Jewish community, their religion was just culture. It wasn't about seeking truth. But when you have those Greeks uh, um, turning from the paganism and coming in, these are people that are genuinely seeking truth. And I don't care who you are, where you're at in the world, if you're seeking truth, God will make sure you find it. Every single time. Just ask an Ethiopian eunuch. And so multitudes came to know the Lord. These joining up with Paul and Silas, listening to the teaching and the preaching. But what takes place is this, as those numbers grow, is the Jewish ones who do not convert get very jealous. In America, you don't have trouble with jealousy in ministry, do you? There is no, no angst there whatsoever. But they organize a wicked, wicked plan. They go and get some vile, wicked men, Gentiles in their city, they're going to cause an uproar. They want a riot to take place. They want these men gone. They're not about to give up their position, their wealth. Their, they just want these men gone. They don't care if they're preaching truth. That doesn't matter. This is about our position. This is our synagogue. This is our town. We don't care if you have truth. We're getting rid of you. And so this riot occurs. And again, America's never had riots, have we? Have had riots? They hear that Paul is staying with Jason. They go to his house to find him. They want him. But they can't locate him. But they bring Jason out, some of the brethren, before the authorities. And that's where the accusations are made. These, are, th these men that have come in, they have turned the world upside down. The city authorities, they're disturbed when they hear the accusations. And so they develop a plan of what, what to do to go forward. And they had Jason basically had to put up money, a guarantee that Paul and Silas would not return. This is why you're going to see in the rest of the missionary journey, the apostles sent other men back, excuse me, back to Thessalonica. He doesn't go himself. Not because he was scared, because we're going to see he certainly wasn't. The man had incredible boldness, but he did not want to jeopardize Jason and his household. So Paul leaves Thessalonica that very night. The guy then travels. He, this guy, I mean, I, just, I would just like to stop at a Holiday Inn, but he never does. <laughs> travels 50 miles. I mean, he hits it hard. 50 miles. We stopped two times. Two times during those travels. He was on his way to a city called Berea. And then he gets there. There was a, somewhat of a relief. Because when he got to the synagogue there, it was a little bit different mentality than what he had experienced. I mean... When he preached, what these people were doing, like, let's see if that matches with the Word of God. They searched the Scriptures daily. And Paul rejoiced to see that. Because you know what that told them? They just want to know it's true. They just want to know it's true. And you know what happened there? Multitudes more converted. A church was started. But then word gets back to those in, in, in Thessalonica that a church in Berea has begun. And so they come down there. They want him gone. They want him out of their province. They want him gone. They head down. Paul hears about it. And so Paul decides he has to head out. 
this is where it gets tough on Paul, all right? Because what he did when he left Philippi, by the way, I left this out, he left Dr. Luke there. Luke stays in Philippi to help that work. And now when he's leaving Berea, he's going to leave Timothy and Silas, which means Paul is now alone. So he heads down to Athens all alone. But I want to use this to see what took place in Thessalonica that allowed Paul to turn the world upside down. I'm going to cover these very quickly here, very quickly. We're going to go through these, all right? First off, I gave you the first P is this, is propel. What I mean by that is a simple two-letter word, go. Go. When the call came, Paul went. When Paul saw the responsibility, he was doing it. I mean, and when Paul sat on the target, you know, he, he, he got, he was moving. I mean, the towns between like Thessalonica and Philippi, they're about 100 miles each. He would usually stop about 30 miles and, and rest and go from there. I mean, we, we, traveling by horse then, what that does tell us, it's most likely he was traveling by horse, I should say, at that time. And, but everywhere he was going, he was going. Listen, Cornerstone, I, I need to cover this quickly. You, when you leave the church house today, you have to understand, you are the missionary. That is you. You have to see the mission field. You have to be willing to go, to step into it, understanding your primary responsibility. It is the gospel. North Pole, Fairbanks, Alaska is never going to change without effective presentation of the gospel with lives being saved and changed. If you don't tell them, who will? You are the missionary. You have to have that commitment to go and to sin to have an effect on the entire world. Number two, provoke. Look at verse number two of Acts chapter 17. And Paul, as his manner was, went on to them three Sabbath days and reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. He reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. So he heads in the synagogue. Like I said, that was his custom. This is what he did. It makes perfect sense. He starts off with a monotheistic culture that has a basis in truth, and more importantly, he walked in their shoes. He knows what they believe, why they believe it. He has the understanding. He has been there. And so he starts there. And he says he's going to reason with them. He's going to use the Bible, to how I worded it here at the peak, to provoke them to believe. This is important. He's going to use the Scriptures to provoke them to believe, to give them a reason to believe. I remember I was preaching one time in, in New Guinea. I, I do the, the open-air preaching works there. I don't do it in the States. It just doesn't work. But in New Guinea, it works. They will come. I'd have my daughter play her violin. They would just come. And then I'd preach. And one of the days I was preaching, and afterwards, a man there wanted to talk much more. We went around the side. We sat down. And it turns out he was a Jehovah Witness. And, and heard, he never heard anything like he said, like what I was preaching. And he said, you kept on saying that Jesus is God. I said, he is. And you know what we did for about an hour? We reasoned out of the scriptures. I was trying to provoke him to believe. Boy, it was about the end of the hour. He was bowing his head, realizing it is faith in Christ alone, making that decision for Christ. We've got to be able to, to provoke. Uh, the word reason, it's a very interesting word. It's a word from which we get other words in English. Two words. We also get the word from the same Greek word, dialogue and dialectic. It indicates not just a formal sermon, is what Paul was doing. 
He just didn't get up there and just preach. He certainly did that, but he also allowed for questions and dialogue. And the imperfect tense that is used showed this was repeated. This was ongoing. This was ongoing. This is what he did. I mean, I talked about the other night the importance of being ready to answer questions that are given unto you. I mean, understand from their mind, from that lost person's mind, these are legitimate questions. Be ready to answer them. And again, like I said the other night, so I'm not ready to, well, study. It really isn't that difficult. Get the answers. I mean, if we have truth and it's the actual answer to changing our culture, be ready to present it. I remember, I think, this was back when Ryan was still here. I got a phone call one day. I was in my office at church. And I never met the man, never been to one of our church services. I, can't, I, he, I think he listened online or something like that. He just said, listen, you don't know me. Um, and uh, he held a pretty important position in Anchorage. He told me what he did. He said, I'd like to come by and talk with you for a few minutes. And I said, sure, yes, you can come right now. So he come in, and he was the, uh, the CFO of the largest hospital in Anchorage. And he was a Mormon. And he sat down and, and he said, he said, he told me where he grew up there in Utah, colleges he went to. Um, and he said, right now, he said, to be honest, I'm questioning everything I've been taught. He goes, I'm having a hard time believing that it's true. And, and so anyhow, it led to a series of discussions about what is truth. And then him getting to the place of saying, well, how do I even know if that's true? If the Book of Mormon is so off. Because he, he was, it was easy to get him to that place to see all the errors that are there, that there's no way this is of God. Yeah. Oh, but this book is different. Yeah. These 66 books, written from God using from kings to fishermen to tax collectors to a shepherd to... I mean, incredible! Written over that 1,500 years, I, I mean... Uh, Going on 40% of it, prophetic in nature. Using it, the word of God, to provoke, to give reason. I remember I was, I was uh, preaching. I, st- I was trying to get a work start in a village called Loka. I, I had two churches established in the island of New Ireland when I was a missionary. And I had, in the one wor- village of Kudu Kudu, um, I had a man from another village come to know the Lord. And it turned out he was what we, they called the Catholic catechist. Okay, So what dominated our island was Catholicism, and every single village was a Catholic church. There was not priest. There was only one priest on the island, and he wasn't there all the time. He was an American guy. And so what they did was they established a catechist to look after the Catholic mission works in each of the villages. They would train them, set them up, boom, and then he would look after the work. When the priest would come down, that's when they do all their mass and everything else. Well, this catechist comes down. His daughter, who was an adult, she has her own family, um, she had been converted and baptized, her and her husband both, in the work in Kudu Kudu. And he comes down, and he's hearing the preaching. And he's not leaving. He's just staying week after week. And then he comes to know the Lord. And so he asked me, would I reach into his village in Lokan? So on Tuesdays, it was, a, it was from where we lived, an hour, the opposite direction of the other work. So I started going there on Tuesdays. I went there for a, I'm talking fast on purpose. Time is short. So I, I was going through several several uh, weeks in a row on Tuesday, giving the gospel, trying to get the mass, just trying to get anything from them, but nothing was taking place. Attendance was great. I would just show up. The men would come. I'm sitting looking on a log. There's, there's no building. 
And they would gather around. I usually get there about 5 o'clock, give me one hour before the darkness to hit, and I would talk. Finally, just nothing taking place, I came out there this one Tuesday, and I said, you know what? I sat down, I let them know, I'm not going to teach you, I'm not going to preach. I've been coming plenty of weeks now. I said, you have to have questions. This is the first time you're hearing this. What are the questions? And then we just sat there in awkward silence. For, I'm not kidding. It was, it was five, ten minutes, maybe even longer than that. It's just awkward. I'm not going to say anything. I am not saying another word. If darkness hits, I'm going to get in my car and go. That's what's going to happen. Now, I, 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 they've been listening to me now for weeks. I have no idea what they're thinking. And then finally, one man, guy in his early 20s, raised and asked the first question. And that just, that just opened the door. When somebody finally asked a question, the questions started just coming and coming. And great questions, too. Because the Catholicism had mixed in the Spiritism. And part of my preaching was, was the separation of that, the wickedness of that. And so they're asking these questions. And then that night, ten men put their faith in Christ that night. Want to know what? It was the reasoning with the Scriptures. Ah. Oh. When they get to that point where they say, I see it. I can see it. Reasoning with the scriptures. Listen, the truth is Christianity, it is, it is defensible. It is a reasonable faith. It makes sense. It is what is true. By the way, this teaches an important lesson for independent fundamental Baptists. Emotionalism is not the key to salvation. It is not. It is the truth of the gospel. If something is manipulated based upon emotionalism, you are running a great risk of a false conversion. <clears throat> Paul did not come in when it was time for the invitation with some fancy music playing, working the crowd to get a conversion. That never happened. <clears throat> he used the scriptures and he had great response to it. Not only that, look at verse 3. Opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered. So we're getting more specific in, into what he was reasoning about. And it uses the word that he opened and alleged. This is, this is the next B. He proved or persuaded. Oh, how do we need to do this when we talk with others? The word open, opening that is you open here is interesting. Same word that's in Luke 24, 32, where Christ, after the resurrection, when he opened up their understanding. Remember he's on the road? He's, he's, he's walking down with a couple of his, of, of his disciples after the resurrection, and he expounds to them the scriptures. He was opening their understanding. Exact same word that is used here. It means to explain what is concealed or obscure. It means to open. See, we don't need to manipulate people into praying a prayer. We simply need to preach the gospel in a way where their eyes are open. I remember that's exactly how it happened to me. I remember when John Norris, Pastor, was leading me to the Lord when it clicked. I get it. I mean, I always heard the word Christ died on the cross, rose again. I didn't question that. But it never registered. Then when he was presenting me the gospel, I'm like, I get it. Tears just started coming down. I mean, tears are just, I, I got it. And he said, would you like to put your faith in? He stopped. He said, would you like to put your faith in Christ now? Yes, I would. I remember, well, I don't have time for that story. That's enough. Maybe afterwards we'll talk about it. The word allege is also one of my favorite words here. You know what this one means, brother? To expound. To expound. He was expounding on the scriptures. 
Listen, this is leading to genuine conversion of multitudes, which because those lives were changed, it was changing the capital city of Macedonia. Do you understand what's taking place right now here? This isn't fake. This isn't, this isn't a, 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 a manipulated event by the Apostle Paul. It is simply him preaching, reasoning through the gospel with people. And you know what scripture she would use? I want you to think about this. What would he use? Oh, I could, it's, it's so easy to pull from. I mean, I, I, I wasn't there. But I have, I have a good idea where Paul would have went. I think especially when he was in the synagogue, he would have started out. I mean, he has those proselytes there that were learning the truth and, 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 and Jehovah God. I'm talking about the Messiah would one day be born in Bethlehem of a virgin. How we'd go through the events of the line of David, of the tribe of Judah. How this Messiah would come. And then getting into the purpose of the Messiah, I believe diving into Isaiah chapter 53 and the suffering that he would have to do. Psalm chapter 22. Going into the prophecies about this Messiah. And look what it says. Opening and alleging. What was he expounding upon and using the scriptures? That Christ, the Messiah, must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. And that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. Remember in that synagogue, they did not believe the Messiah would suffer, die, and raise again. Paul is proving it from scripture. He's opening their understanding Multitudes who want truth, I see it. Jesus is in fact the Messiah. Multitudes are converted. This is the pattern of how we turn the world upside down. Really is incredible. And as we see, there will always be a response. You have some getting saved. But listen, don't be surprised you head into work and you're going to take this seriously with your family and you decide, I am, going to get, I am going to present the gospel effectively. I'm going to be able to use these scriptures to open and reason with people to show them, listen, Christ is the answer. It's not the Christ that the media is portraying to you. It's not the Christians that the media is portraying to you. This is truth. I get news. You're going to have response both ways. You will have those that will convert, but you know what? You're going to have multitudes that won't. And they're, and they're going to give you trouble. They're going to want you gone. You think the devil's just going to lay down all of a sudden because you decide to give truth? No, he's going to stand up now. He's going to start fighting. Just like with Paul. There's going to be response both ways. Be prepared for it. It's worth it. Do you understand that? Yeah. It's worth it. Don't think it's just going to be a, 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 you know, a, a bed of roses. It's not. But it's worth it. Is it not true? Are there not things worth fighting for? This is one of them. This is one of them you should be willing to endure. <clears throat> be ready for that battle when it takes place. Two more, and I'll cover both of these very quickly. He was persistent. He gets thrown out of Thessalonica. He got beaten and jailed in Philippi. And we leave. I, I thought the guy would rest. I thought he might take a break. So you know what? I, I, I need a bit of a sabbatical. I'm just going to take a month off right now. This has been tough. Yeah. And, and you know what he does? As soon as we get there, where's the synagogue? I'm not stopping. You know what he was? He was persistent. One of our problems in our Christian life today is we're too much like this. R.A. Torrey, I believe, put it best in one of his books. I can't remember which book, but I'll tell you. He said there's three types of Christians in the world. He said you have your rowboat, your sailboat, 
and your steamboat Christians. Ari Torrey, of course, we're, all, we're going back to the time of steamboats, you know, turn of the 20th century. And he said, the rowboat Christians, he says, those are though they get in the boat and they row and they row and then they got all their strength, but before you know it, it gets difficult. Yeah. It gets really hard, the Christian life. It's been all in their own strength. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't take long when their, their strength is gone, they're dead in the water. Nothing else. He says, secondly, they're sailboat Christians, and we're flooded with sailboat Christians. They, this is going to be this group. Provided the winds of revival are blowing, they're doing great. But when the winds die down, they're dead in the water. And then he said, lastly, they're steamboat Christians. This was Paul. He was a steamboat Christian. He wasn't up and down. It was persistent. It was consistent. It was with endurance. It was with perseverance. He said, R.A. Torrey wrote, he said, the steamboat Christian, they just simply get in the boat and let the boat do the work. And he said, that steamboat, the power of it represents God's Holy Spirit working in our life. Of how we trust in him, we yield our life to him. And let him do the work. Paul was persistent. Determined to stay at it. Let your love for God, your desire to glorify him, drive you to stay at it, not to quit. And then lastly was personal sacrifice, and I'll just mention this. Think what Paul did here. Paul, for the most part, always wanted companions around like all of us do. All right, Even in times in prison, he would. But he knows, like when he left Philippi, he goes, I'm not going to leave them by themselves. I'm not doing that. Luke, I need you to stay here. Continue to strengthen the church. He's getting ready to leave Berea. They got ran out of Thessalonica. All right. And, and he's in Berea. He says, listen, Timothy and Silas, I need you guys to stay here. He's also going to send them. It's amazing what he does, which I'll get more into this in the afternoon service. All right. Because Paul decides, and he has to do a little bit of a fake out because of the persecution that's coming. It's pretty neat what he does. But anyhow, so he tricks them how he's getting to Athens. But he heads to Athens, and he's alone. I personally believe, based on other things we can, we can get into, that this is one of the very difficult times in Paul's ministry. He was alone. Heading down to Athens. This, I'll talk more about Athens here. We're going to get into the rest of chapter 17 for the afternoon service. What happens there? Because that's also amazing. So he was willing, when he made that call, when he, when he brought in Timothy and Silas, and he said, listen, fellas, I need you to stay. You, you can just imagine Timothy and Silas. Wait, Paul, one of us need to go with you. And I, I know how the conversation works. We're going to see it when, they do, when he does get down to Athens and eventually take place in Corinth. He's like, he's like no, listen, because I might need to send one of you. Get word one of you to head back to Thessalonica. I need you both to stay here. I got to go. And he gave instructions for a time. It got to a certain point where I need you, though, when it's time to get to Athens, you get to Athens. I'm going to want you there. But he was willing to sacrifice. It takes personal sacrifice. Again, too often we simply want a religion that costs nothing. We don't see the value in it. That's sad. We have the truth the world needs. The fact of North Pole being able to be turned upside down can start right here with the people in this room. And then you all have an effect throughout the world in world missions. With heads bowed and eyes closed. Now, 
let me say this. I don't know where you're at spiritually today, but perhaps there's some here that you would say, I want you to listen to me. You can keep your head, heads bowed, eyes closed. Maybe you're not certain that heaven is your home. I want you to listen to me. One day you're going to die and stand before God. The Bible said, is appointment once thought, but after this, the judgment. You will die, and judgment day is coming. When that judgment day comes, the Bible tells us God will use His law to judge your life, and the problem is you are very guilty. And 100% of those found guilty are cast into a lake of fire, every single one. Something has to take place where somehow you look perfect when you stand before God, because that's His requirement. Not that your good works outweigh your bad works. Not that you are a member of a certain church. Somehow, it has to look as if you have never sinned. That is why God became a man 2,000 years ago. God became a man because as a man, He lived the perfect life. The only one who's ever done it. He is the only one who could stand at Judgment Day and the Father could say, you're innocent. But listen to me, He lived that perfect life for you. When He went to the cross... The Bible tells us, for, God, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When he, when he went to that cross, God the Father placed upon his son all of our sin, your sin, as if he was the liar, the idolater, the adulterer, the thief. And he judged him in your place. And at the same time that he gives you, that he takes your sin, he gives you, that verse teaches us, Christ's perfect righteousness comes to you. He changes places with you. The cross satisfied the justice of God. And he gives you that perfect life. If you come to him in repentance and faith, he'll save you right there. Right there. Is there anyone here say, Pastor, I'm not certain that heaven is my home. I don't know that I have been converted. Please pray for me. Just raise your hand for me. Let me see it. I won't call you out. Anybody here like that? Just some really small children is all I'm seeing. All right, Christian. We want to be a people that affects our culture, that affects our world. The key is in the gospel. But you know what? we got to be willing to go. To be able to take those scriptures to prove, persuade, to stay persistent, and yes, it might involve personal sacrifice, but boy, is it worth it. Even faith promise involves some personal sacrifice, but boy, is it worth it. If the Lord spoke to your heart this morning, I want to give a chance for you to come and pray. Father, heaven, bless this time of invitation, Lord. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Mary,